Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. On this week's episode, we've got a panel of teachers from across the state who will be chiming in on a few topics, teaching myths, extreme student behavior, and classroom successes. I plan to start periodically hosting teacher panels on the show, so if you have any ideas for future questions you'd like to hear guests answer, let me know. You can reach me at my email address, which is carly, C-A-R-L-Y, at idahoednews.org. Today's guests include Karen Lawrenson. She's the 2023 Idaho Teacher of the Year, and she teaches at Treaty Rock Elementary in Post Falls, Idaho. We've also got Julie Naraki, a math teacher at Skyline High in Idaho Falls, who was also on Superintendent Debbie Critchfield's transition team. And finally, we've got Lindsay Matthews, an English teacher at Alameda Middle School in Pocatello, and she has been on the show previously to talk about Banned Books Week. So without further ado, here's the show. All right, so the first topic we're going to address with our panelists is debunking teaching myths. So there's always teacher myths out there, whether it's that teachers take the job for the easy summers or what have you. So I wanted to ask our panelists, what are some of the most common misconceptions about teaching? And what are some truths about teaching you didn't realize until you became a teacher? So we're going to start with Karen on this one. What do you think? Um, I would say that a common misconception about the teaching profession is that anybody can be a teacher. I think that a lot of people have this misconception because everybody has been a student. And so I think that everybody is really familiar with the profession of teaching. Um, But I also think that because teachers make it look so easy, (laughs) that um, a lot of people think that it is an easy job or that it is an easy career. Um, but it's not. And um, I think that um, people just think that um, anybody with very little training can just jump into this profession or that early um, like early childhood education is easy. And that also or teaching kindergarten is easy. And um, that's also not true. It's just as hard as teaching high school. And um, I think that those are some really common misconceptions um, that really are not true. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think that's true as well. I remember because I used to teach and before I taught, um, I thought that teachers got told everything to teach. Like they were given all the lessons and everything and that you just delivered it. And as I got into it and started learning to become a teacher and whatnot, I was like, oh, you literally have to plan out and create and decide every minute of every class. I mean, we do have these general standards to guide us, but there's just a lot of work that I had no idea about. And I also think you're right that the lower grade teachers are sometimes treated like their job's easier. And you're absolutely right that that's not the case. It's just a different set of hard things for each grade level, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a really good point. Um, Julie, how about you? What do you think? Um, I think, I mean, you kind of nailed my first one with that summers off because, you know, I, I was an engineer first. So Going into teaching, I was like, this is going to be great. I'll have summers to spend with my kids. 
and I teach upper levels. So um, in the upper grades all summer long, and I, I know this is true no matter what grade level you teach, but I'm doing PD, I'm doing training, I'm going to AP conferences. In fact, a lot of times I'm trying to figure out um, how I'm going to fit summer in with all of the training that we have to do. Um, so, so that was kind of funny. I think my, my biggest myth that I hear right now um, is about teachers indoctrinating kids, because I'll be honest, if I could indoctrinate a kid into doing anything, it would be doing their homework. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think we have the power to control um, children the way people think we do. We just hope we can grow them into individuals that can think for themselves and problem solve and, and that kind of thing. And I think that probably leads me into my truth. Um, and like I said, I was an engineer before I became a teacher. I had zero idea that education and teaching was political, that there was anything political behind it. But in reality, from the moment we step in the door, everything we do in this school is regulated by, by statute, by law, um, whether it's local government, school board policy, all the way up to state level things. Everything that we do is basically political. Um, not what we do in our classrooms, but how we're told to do everything from minute to minute. So um, that that was something that I had no idea about before I became a teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you make a number of good points there. And I wanted to go back to what you mentioned about the summers because, yeah, a lot of teachers do have really busy summers in which they're doing work that's not paid, like attending conferences and things like that, just because they want to get better and they care. And the other thing about summers is when I was teaching, I found that I had to have that time to reset because the school year is so crazy and so busy. It's like nine to 10 months of nonstop madness that, you know, if I didn't have those eight weeks or so in the summer, there's absolutely no way that I could sustain. Like the summers just reset me just enough to do another school year, basically. Lindsay, what about you? What do you think? Um, so I wanted to go back to one of the points Karen brought up about the differences in ages. Um, this is my first year teaching middle school. I was at high school for 10 years and boy, howdy, am I seeing the difference in what that age does. I had mostly juniors and freshmen last year and, um, teaching sixth grade is just a whole different ball game. Like all the tried and true tricks at high school do not uh, equal out in the middle school realm. So it does take, you know, to be a good teacher, I think you have to also be willing to always be learning. Um, it's like a reciprocal relationship with your students. And you know, what is really awesome for one age group isn't for another. And what's really awesome for, you know, my first hour might not work out for my fourth or fifth hour. And so I think being very flexible and open and and reciprocating what you can with your students is really important. And not everybody's always able to do, it's not an easy thing to, to constantly be like on your toes and able to pivot um, in response to them and their needs and behaviors and everything. So it's, yeah, I really, um, I mean, I agree with both points that, that they said, I don't really have much to add except that Maybe one thing I've really started to notice is I think a lot of people expect teachers to kind of function as social workers. And I used to kind of joke like, oh, I think all teachers need to have a minor in counseling or something. 
but now I, I don't think that's quite so funny and I don't think it's quite a joke. And, you know, I think we do often act as social workers for our students. You know, we advocate for them, we listen to them, we're there for them. But, you know, that's not really what we went to school for and that's not why we're in the school. And so sometimes I think that does impact our ability to be, you know, just teachers and just teach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the many hats that teachers wear. You're not going to be just a teacher. Like you said, you might be the person who notices that that child is hungry or needs a coat. You might be a coach. You might be a club advisor. You might be in leadership positions for your school. Like every teacher is always doing so many things for their school. All right, thanks you guys. So let's move on to our second topic. I wanted to ask you all about extreme student behavior. And this is a bit of a newsy topic. Just last week, State Superintendent Debbie Critchfield said severe behavior and emotional issues in the classroom have become the pandemic of our time. And I thought that was really interesting. So anecdotally, I'm wondering if you have all seen a rise in extreme student behaviors or emotional issues. And as a teacher, what have you been doing to help students cope and manage? And on a broader scale, outside of just your classroom, what could be done in general to help students? So this time we'll start with Julie. What do you think? Um, so I think we we definitely have seen a rise in, in extreme student behaviors, just a, an overall change in behaviors. Um, since the pandemic, I mean, just the last, you know, four or five years, even, I, I think our, our kids are addicted to, um, to devices. They, um, and, and I don't, I, I know that it's part of the pandemic for that reason, but, um, you know, they just can't seem to separate themselves from that instant gratification of, of social media or, or game time or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and I do, you know, I, I teach mostly dual credit courses, um, at the school. I do have one, um, algebra one class with freshmen and there are, there are differences and commonalities in all of their behavior. But, um, I think one of the biggest things that I see is, is this, the kids don't really have coping skills. They don't, they don't know how to calm themselves down. They don't understand the feelings that they have and, and they, they react, um, instantly without thinking. Um, they don't have any time management skills. Um, deadlines don't seem to be um, something kind of in their wheelhouse. Device management is a problem. Communication is a problem. And I think a lot of that has to do with watching how adults behave during the pandemic, how we treated each other, um, how we treat each other still, uh, things things that are said, things that are um, in the news, the way way adults talk to each other all the time, it, it's so disrespectful that, you know, if, if adults can talk to adults that way, then kids should be able to act that way. Um, there's no repercussions when adults say and do things. So why should there be for kids? It's a little bit tricky. Um, I think what, what I try to do for my students is I, I try to slowly um, bring them back to some expectations that I have for them. So uh, trying to teach them coping skills, trying to teach them time management, uh, device management. So when my students come in, you'll see back here, I have this little device over here. They hang their phones up as soon as they come in, which I never really thought I'd have to do at a college level math class, but 
I can't separate them from their phones otherwise. So they put them up there. We have a good lesson. And, and now my kids, you know, we're halfway through it. Well, we're almost done with the second try, right? So they walk in, they just put them in. They know we have a good time. We have a good relationship. We can have good conversations. Um, so for me, I try to remove the excuses that I know they're going to give me. You know, um, I put everything online for them. So if they're not here, they know where they can find their work. I, um, I don't know. I, I just want to try to help them cope because my kids are going to leave me and go to college and their college professors aren't going to take those excuses. Their, their um, employers aren't going to allow them to be late. So, so I hold them accountable for coming in for tardies and absences and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so for me, it's kind of like, I'm going to remove some of those excuses, but I'm going to do it with grace and I'm going to do it with kindness and compassion and try to teach them, you know, why it's important. It's important for you to come to class on time. So you're not interrupting the education of other people. It's important for you to put your device down so that you can give your attention and focus to somebody. Um, and communication is really important. They need to learn how to write emails to adults and advocate for themselves um, and be respectful. Um, and so, you know, I mean, even, even today, I got an email from a student who's gone for BPA and it was awful. It was very disrespectful. And, and sometimes that, you know, you think you're just gonna turn around and, and send something back that's not great, right? So instead I, I just, emailed her back and told her to take a deep breath, reread her email, think about it a little bit, and then, you know, send me another one later and we'll talk. Because I think, you know, she was probably in the heat of the moment and she was pretty passionate about something. And, and you know, as adults, we need to be better role models for our kids because they are watching everything we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you bring a lot, up a lot of great points. One of the things you said is that you've seen these increases since the pandemic, but you also said you've seen them in the last four to five years in general. So it sounds like some of it you attribute to the pandemic, but otherwise you attribute some of it to the changes in society because of technology. Does that sound right? I do. Yeah, I think it was starting to go down because of that. And then the pandemic just reinforced it all. Mm hmm. Yeah, and then I like how you say that you have to teach the soft skills in class and you have to take time to do that. Even though you're a high school teacher teaching college classes, you're still doing that. And when I was teaching high school English, I did the same thing. I'd have to say, you know, it matters to be on time because it's disrespectful to me. I'd have to fully explain why they shouldn't be late. Or I'd have to explicitly teach when you write an email, you should have a formal salutation. You need to have professional language. You need to have capitalization and punctuation. So yeah, I think a lot of teachers are probably finding themselves maybe taking some more class time to do that. And maybe that's just needed today. Um, all right, let's move on to Lindsay. What do you think? So to go off that real quick, that's part of the reason why I moved down to middle school is I felt you know, if I'm going to work on so much of these soft skills, maybe I need to go down um, to where I feel it's more appropriate and start working on it there and hopefully, you know, do some more work in with that in that grade level. And I sure have been trying. <laughs> um, but then back to the behavior thing, I think for sure phones are a part of it. And one thing I feel like has really come up is, you know, like TikTok trends, like last year devious licks like schools had things destroyed stolen like i had an electric pencil sharpener stolen and an iphone charger stolen from my classroom and um i've noticed i don't really pay attention to TikTok. i'm not on it but whenever you know they pop up like 
on your YouTube reels or whatever, you know, so other social media, it always seems like they're very destructive and our kids are very, I mean, even at the sixth grade level, I didn't think sixth graders would be on TikTok, but a lot of my sixth graders are on TikTok and I don't think there's any way to manage what they're seeing. So they're seeing, you know, these funny, destructive trends that pop up and they're just kind of emulating it in their own lives because to them it's it's silly and they don't quite understand the consequences. And so I think social media and technology plays a big part in it for them, but I also think it does for parents. Um, I recently read a parenting article and it talked about how, especially starting, and I hate it because I'm part of this generation, but millennial parents, um, like that age and down, the parents who spend more time on their phones tend to be less, you know, engaged, effective, you know, um, like emotionally available parents who, you know, discipline and, and exercise, not like authoritarian, but like, you know, teaching the rules and teaching those soft skills. It's, you know, as parental cell phone use increases, parental like effectiveness decreases is what this article said. And I thought that was really interesting. And um, as I read it, it made me kind of think about my own parenting, but then also some things that in the conversations with students or parents even themselves has come up and that I thought was pretty accurate. So Lindsay, you mentioned earlier devious licks, and I think those of us in the education world know what that means, but those outside of it probably don't. So can you explain what that was? Um, yeah, I guess it'll probably be like the very like, you know, older teacher lame version of it. But from <laughs> what I understand, it was stealing or destroying things for like clout or to be cool. And so like at our school, at high school, at Century High School last year, you know, and even all the high schools, it was destruction in the bathrooms, breaking off um, oh, paper towel dispensers and soap dispensers and urinals and stealing things. Like I think trophies were stolen and items from classrooms were stolen and it was all recorded and posted online to get attention and praise for completing that act. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, like you said, it wasn't just in Pocatello schools, but schools throughout Idaho, schools across the nation. So yeah, social media really does impact kids of all ages, um, including the younger kids that you might think that it doesn't so much. But I think that's really interesting and admirable that you decided to move to lower grades to start addressing those problems earlier. Karen, what are what are you seeing in terms of extreme student behaviors? Um, I'm noticing, and a lot of the teachers that I speak with in the elementary schools are noticing um, actually pretty violent student behavior and uh, student behavior that is so disruptive that it keeps the educator from actually teaching the rest of the class um, all over the place. And I think that many students, as well as their parents, are really struggling with it. And I believe that um, many of our legislators believe that it's not an educator's job to teach those soft skills, or as educators call it, social-emotional learning. Um, however, many of these skills are not being taught at home because many parents work or are busy or as other people said are on devices or for whatever reason um, students are, are lacking skills and they're lacking classroom skills um, 
not only is, is that part of the issue, but our classrooms are really full. <laughs> I have about 30 students in my classroom. And when we have um, extreme student behavior, um, and you have, you know, many students within the classroom who have these behaviors, it really becomes imperative that the teacher addresses that um, proactively. And so instead of reactively. Um, so you have to be able to teach students the skills that they're lacking. And that has to be something that we're allowed to do. Um, one of the, the tough things is that in many schools, teachers are not given a curriculum of social emotional learning to teach with. That's not something that we're provided with. Um, not only that, but in Idaho, um, the student to counselor ratio is about 400 to 1. And according to the, you know, Association for School Counselors, um, it's supposed to be about 250 to 1. So in our elementary school, we have over 400 students. We have one counselor that checks out. Um, it would be helpful if we had two. Um, that would be one to teach classes and one to help students who are struggling, you know, as it happens. But we don't have that. Um, it would be super helpful um, if we had more funding at the state level to get the counselors that we need to get the students the help that they deserve. Um, that would be something that would be super helpful throughout Idaho. Um, not only that, but I think it would be uh, very helpful if teachers were given um, better kinds of professional development to help them receive tools to help students who are struggling with extreme behavior. Um, for example, um, I, I only get professional development from my district, you know, about one day a year, and very little of it is on classroom management. Um, and the classroom management that worked 10 years ago is not classroom management that works today. Um, I went ahead and got a master's degree in special education so that I would be able to better help my students with behavioral skills. And it, you know, I, I had to go out of state to do that. Um, our state does not provide a path for educators um, to become specialists in behavior. It doesn't exist in Idaho. So I think that Idaho could do a better job also by having one of our colleges or universities develop a plan where we could grow our own board certified behavior analysts that could help our school districts um, with behavior. That's something that we could definitely do. Yeah, you bring up a number of good points and it's almost like for teachers, they're having to feel like they are needing to become parents almost if some of those skills aren't addressed at home for whatever reason or maybe it's a deeper social problem. But you talked about how those soft skills or social emotional learning, there's been pushback against it. From your understanding, why are people afraid of or intimidated by the idea of that being in schools? Um, I think it's kind of like Julie said, um, that people think we're indoctrinating students in, in some way. Um, but basically, all we're trying to do is teach students to get along. We're trying to teach students how to manage their big emotions. That's really all we're trying to do. Um, it's as simple as that. 
And so I, I think that people hear something on Fox News or they hear something weird that has happened in one weird pocket of the country. And it's not what's happening in our classrooms. All I do in my classroom is teach students how to communicate with each other in respectful, positive ways, how to keep their hands to themselves, and how to use I statements like, I don't like it when you do that, we stop. Um, and also just, you know, how to manage those big feelings that they have in ways that don't harm other people. And I really don't think that anybody would disagree with that if they took the time to really understand what social and emotional learning is. Mm -hmm. However, they don't. They hear um, stories from other places, they hear misconceptions, and then they immediately think that must be happening in our classrooms. And it's not. Um, I'm pretty sure that Julie and Lindsay would both agree that they're teaching the exact same thing. That's what those soft skills are. That's what we're doing. And it's completely appropriate. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate it. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, so this Lindsay, if I could, I exactly there just this week um, at our middle schools, we do these flex classes and it's just like two um, elective classes. And, you know, sometimes it's used for intervention for students and sometimes it's, you know, if they don't need in, any intervention or assistance, it can be a fun class like yoga or Legos or something like that. But I had a teacher in my building approach me and essentially she introduced and is going to be starting what is a, a social emotional learning flex, but we can't use that terminology. And so, you know, it's like a social skills 101. And that's what she's mostly going to be working on is like those I statements and conflict management and all that. But I mean, just earlier this year, I had a single student punch two kids in the face in less than six days because he thought they were annoying and really tried to justify why he was in the right for that. And that was just wild to me that that was like, a conversation I had to have about how that's not acceptable and we don't get to just treat people like that because we find them annoying. Like it's things that might seem common sense to us adults, but it's, it's, it's not trickling down for some reason. Yeah. And, and from what I'm hearing from you guys, what you're just trying to get to the point of is where student behavior isn't disrupting learning. Cause if the learning's disrupted, then that's, that's the whole point of class. And I was going to say, Karen, that I appreciated your um, ideas for solutions, funding for more counselors, better PD, classroom management techniques that are updated, maybe a route to becoming a behavior specialist as a teacher. Those are all really good ideas. So that was kind of a heavy topic, but I think it's a really important one and one that's pretty pressing. But for our last topic, it's lighter and I just wanted you guys to share with us a success story. So I wanna hear about a success you've had in the last month or so that could be a lesson that went well, a student that you were able to connect with or a coworker, a teacher that you learned, for, learned from or that you worked with to create change. So Lindsay, will you go first on this one? Um, yeah, so I have recently started a unit um, on the novel Number of the Stars by Lois Lowry which is a historical fiction a story based on the author's friend who did survive um, World War II living in Denmark. Uh, she herself wasn't um, part of the persecuted population, but um, she saw it and witnessed it. 
And so, you know, introducing sixth graders to the Holocaust in World War II is very different than the conversations we have in high school. So it's been, I've had to kind of change how I introduced it and stuff. And I definitely watered it down quite a bit, but it was really neat because um, I had another, our eighth grade history teacher gave an introduction lesson and she had like gave them little note catchers. And throughout the day, the kids were just in awe and they just were taking all the notes and they were asking these great questions. And, you know, it was like a day that they were all on and engaged and attentive. And the next day when I had them back to just myself and we're having a conversation, it was really interesting how every hour there was a kid that would raise their hands and be like, is it okay if I think this is interesting? And so then we got to have a conversation about how, you know, it's not that we're thinking it's like cool, but it's something that they're interested in learning more about and they're fascinated and they don't understand. And we have lots of great conversations about um, the treatment of people at that time and everything. And so it's been really cool to kind of go through this and, and talk about these heavy topics in, a, in an, an appropriate way with sixth graders. And I think it's really neat because Idaho actually has one of the best um, Holocaust related curriculums of all the states in the nation. I read that in an article a couple years ago, and I've always thought it was really neat. Um, and it's kind of fun to see it, you know, starting at the sixth grade level and having these conversations. And it really highlights like how kids do have empathy and they do care and they do know what's like right and wrong. And it, it's been fun. It's been fun in my classroom. Yeah. As fun as it can be, if that makes sense. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I love how cross-curricular classes can be like you're accessing history, but you're doing it through a literary text. And I also love how you teaching that helps you see the empathy, even in these young kids. All right, Karen, how about you? Uh, one of the things that has just been absolutely thrilling for me, um, especially this year, is that I'm going to be completely honest and say that I was a kid that always struggled with math, like hugely. Um, and my teachers only taught math one way, and it was a standard algorithm, and it was like, carry the one, borrow from here, why? Why does this work? Check. <laughs> figure it out. And I didn't figure it out and I didn't get it. And I was always just a really bright kid and the, and I always just had to move on. And I got all the way through trigonometry without ever having really number sense or understanding that. And um, it was always just really sad to me. And the way that we teach math these days is so differentiated. Um, the kids in my class get so many different ways to tackle a problem or to conceptualize math, to build models, to see different things. But every single day, my kids are like, oh my gosh, I get it. Or I totally see that. And it is just thrilling to me. My heart just explodes every single day when I'm able to see that my kids have the number sense that I know that kids my age did not have. And every single day, they are like so excited. They run to math group. Like they grab their pencils and they just are just poised and ready like, let's go. 
and they are so excited. And when it actually is time to be done with math, they groan. I cannot believe it. They like are like, what? No! Oh, come on! Can we do it longer? And I just can't even imagine. And I'm like, I see Julie like grinning, and I'm like, yay! We're gonna get to you. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna have number six. And it's gonna be amazing because these kids like have number sense. And it's it's a little bit tricky because you know the parents and you know they're like. Oh my gosh, I, I don't understand all of these different strategies. And it's confusing, and I understand that. But the great thing is, is that the kids do get them. And even if the kids don't maybe like grasp one of the strategies, they totally get another one. And so, like, for example, in my class this week, we're um, you know making equivalent fractions and comparing fractions. And so some of the kids are like building models and that's what works for them. They're actually like seeing the picture and that that's what works. And then other kids are like, no, I'm gonna multiply it by a fraction, like a number over a number and make another equivalent fraction. And that works for them. And then other kids are like, no, actually I'm going to use a baseline. You know, I'm gonna like compare it to a baseline. So there's three ways that kids can do it and all be successful. And in my classroom, like math is king. And as a former like person that cried every day in math, like that is just so exciting. I can't even. So. <laughs> well, I have to say I'm really jealous of the kids in your class. And I would have loved to be there because I was a fellow math struggler like you. Like English always came really easy, but I've always had a hard time with math. I've definitely never groaned because math was ending, that's for sure. But I also think Same here. <laughs> I also think it speaks to how you can be a great teacher of even the subjects that aren't your strongest. And sometimes that can make you be a better teacher because you can identify with those kids that struggle, you know? Like if you've naturally gotten your subject a whole life, you may not relate with those kids at all. So I think that's really cool. All right, Julie, how about you? So I'm going to have to start by tagging on to Karen because I had a girl this week in one of my pre-cal classes and she's always really, really quiet. Um, and we we took kind of like a little one question quiz. How do we do? And and there were lots of groans and they weren't like happy groans because, you know, they were they were like, we still have to do math. But <laughs> she just like she's like, I just know this really, really easy way to do. And she hopped up. I'm like, well, show us. And, and it was just something that clicked for her and made sense. It's completely mathematically correct. I just never would have thought to teach it that way. But I want my kids to do math, how it makes sense in their brains. And I, I ask them all the time, like, so when you're doing math in your head, what do you see? Because in my head, I see a chalkboard. They probably don't see a chalkboard because I don't know what a chalkboard is. But <laughs> maybe they see a whiteboard. Maybe they see stacks. Like, but when you're doing something in your head, how do you how do you see that? Because nobody sees math the same way. And so I grew up in the same same time when, you know, it was like, this is the way you do it. It's my way or the highway. You know, if you don't follow my steps exactly, you get it wrong. I'm not even going to look at it. But I want kids to be able to do math however it makes sense to them, because in the real world, like that's what we do. Right. We have to have multiple ways to do things and all kinds of tools. So anyways, that just that makes me super excited. Um, which my, my success is about math too. And so, you know, obviously, but, um, you know, the state took away the senior math requirement and, and this, 
so it was gone from the state this year. My district's removing it for next year. Um, and so I was nervous. I was nervous, like, so our seniors aren't going to take math. And the whole reason we put it in place was to make kids more college and career ready. Um, and, and it just wasn't really working the way we put it in there. The, the statute doesn't say exactly what we really needed to say. So, um, and, and the last thing you want is a kid to sit in a math class their senior year when it doesn't help them with their future. It's not their pathway. And they're just doing that when they could be doing something that they love. And there, there are lots of elective choices in school that can get a kid really excited about future or spark an interest for a career. So that's not what we want, but um, we got our numbers for registration last year and, and I teach a calculus two course and, and I've taught it. I think this is my seventh year and I typically have 12 or 13 kids in it. And I know that that sounds really small and it's an ideal number, you know, but, but Calc 2 is a pretty hard class, right? So 12 is a good number. I have 26 kids registered for it for next year. So even though they don't have to take math their senior year, 26 kids, I doubled the number of kids I have in that class. And so for me, that's a huge success because kids have seen a value in STEM and a value in math and, and a help that, that advanced opportunities money, knowing they could get ahead with all of these credits for college. It just makes my heart so happy to see these kids um, wanting to learn. And I think I think we've had this excuse so long about COVID and our kids are having all of this learning loss and, you know, how are we going to fill their holes and, and the kids just aren't academically achieving the way we want them to. Um, and I think that I think that our kids are starting to bounce back and, and those expectations are coming back and their hard work is coming back um, and the future is coming back. You know, everything is is bright and and they're going to start working where they need and we fill holes and we move kids forward and um and i'm just super excited to see that success yeah i love that i love that they're taking the math class even though they're not required to were you like advertising that to them extra or why do you think it doubled like that um i mean not not really i mean obviously we always were like okay these these are your paths but um, what I like to do is I like to tell the kids, like, wh what are you going to do? I mean, I they know I'm an engineer, so they, they know, like, if we're talking STEM, I can tell you where you're going. I have two children that are um, going to graduate from nursing school this year. So if you want to go medical, I can tell you that. I have a son that's an engineer. So, I, you know, if you tell me what you think you want to study and you tell me where you want to go to school, I'll sit down with the kids and we'll talk about different paths and different classes and, and things like that. So I do talk to a lot of them through that. I think the major um, benefit for them is if they take that Calc 2 class for me, they actually take Calc 1 first semester, Calc 2 second. So they walk out the door after that year with eight credits of math. Um, and that's eight college credits of math is a pretty big deal. So um, I think that's really what it is. But we haven't seen that strong of a motivation for a few years. So it's, it's kind of nice to see that coming back. You know, I'll take that harder class. I'll put a little more effort in because that reward is is good. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the value of having teachers who've also had a different career first because you've been out in the world and you can say, you know, this is how it applies. This is how you can use it. This is what that career is like. I think that's great. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate you all doing our very first teacher panel. It was great to have you. Does anybody want to add anything before we end for the day? All right. Well, thanks, everybody, and see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. 
we'll be doing a teacher panel every month. So if you have any topics, send them in. And otherwise, make sure to go to idahoednews.org for all the latest. Have a great week.